verses 38 through 42. You have heard it said, you have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we are uh, journeying through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in my opinion, many opinions, the, the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, it's from our Lord Jesus. And he did this right after he was in the wilderness for 40 days. And he then calls his disciples to himself. And as he calls his disciples to himself, he begins to tell them what it will be like for them to be kingdom citizens. Now that you're a believer, what is it going to be like for you and for me as, as God's kingdom citizens? How are we going to live our life? And so he takes the next three chapters in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and shows us what it looks like. Uh, we're in the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we are making our way verse by verse, almost word for word through this sermon. Because I believe for us, if we begin to live by the Sermon on the Mount, that we will begin to see our lives change. And when we see our lives change, we will begin to see uh, the lives of other people's change. He tells us that right after the Beatitudes. He calls us to be salt and light of the world. The only way for us to be salt and light of the world is to be changed men and women that have surrendered fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that's what this sermon is about. Uh, this morning we're at the fifth antithesis of the Old Testament. So uh, in that day, the, the Pharisees had begun to teach the law of God in ways that they could uphold their own righteousness. Uh, if you know anything about God's Word, you know that it's impossible in and of ourselves to be righteous. There's nothing that we can do to be righteous. He tells us that in Isaiah. That even the most righteous things we do are but yet filthy rags to Jesus because we cannot do it on our own. And so here we are. The, the Pharisees had begun to teach, hey, this is how you can keep the law and keep the law in and of yourself so that externally you can look righteous. But as we looked at last week, what Jesus tells us is, hey, your insides is what's matter. It's not your outsides. He says to them, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the inside, but he says that you, are, you have bones on the inside. There's no life in you. Life comes with, within, not without. And that's what Jesus is going to tell us here. And so this morning, we're going to look at, we've been looking at the heart of fill in the blank. We looked at the heart of lust, the heart of divorce, the heart of oaths last week. This morning, we'll look at the heart of retaliation. Here's the thing about us, where we, the day and age that we live in. We live in a day and age that's all about our rights. This country was founded on rights. That's the whole premise of the Constitution. What is our legal rights? And we've taken that and we've taken it to the extreme. Now there's a right for everything. Uh, there, there's rights for men and rights for women and rights for homosexuals and rights for marriage and rights for this and rights for that. And what we've done is we begin to fought for what is right rather than for what is true. We uphold the, the things that are right. See, if we only hold up the things that are right, we'll always bypass the things that are true. Because if we just fight for gay marriage, the rights for gay marriage, we can fight all day on that, but we've gone away from the truth of God. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at what does God's Word say about our rights? Because it's when we begin to fight for our rights is when we begin to want to have retaliation. We, we begin to defend ourselves. See, rights always come back to ourselves. What's best for me? It's, a, it's amazing that we live in a culture where animals have more rights than humans. Why do I say that? Be, because we'll see more television commercials about the rights of a dog rather than the rights of an unborn child. And so for us this morning, we've got to get back to what does God's Word say about what is the truth, because when we begin to stand on the truth of God, our rights will not matter, because the truth of God is what matters. See, we get into fights, we go into retaliation, when we begin to get our toes stepped on with what our rights are. Well, I have the right to do this. I have the right to do that. I'm a free person. I can do this and I can do that. And we go away from the truth of God. Here's what John MacArthur says about this idea about when we go from the truth of God to what is right about ourselves, we begin to fight for self rather than truth. He says this, when self is at the forefront, the foreground, everything else and everyone else is pushed to the background. Let me read that one more time. When self is at the forefront or the foreground, everything else and everyone else is pushed to the background. Meaning, it doesn't matter anymore about people. It doesn't matter. When my right gets in the way of you, you no longer matter because it's what's right for me. And Jesus is going to say, hey, when, when self gets in the way, we'll go to retaliation. We'll want to retaliate. It's exactly what James said in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. One of my favorite books. If you ever read the book of James, James is just simply a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Verse by verse, the book of James is verse by verse, the the commentary on the book of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this is what he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your rights are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Right? We desire, so we desire the right for something, so what's best for us, we'll murder over our rights. We see that all over the place. He says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here's what Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1, 4 through 6, and verse 12. He says, this is Paul saying this, the Apostle Paul. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord himself? Remember, Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Are not you my workmanships in the Lord? Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take any, uh, take along a believing wife as to do other apostles and brothers of the Lord and of Peter? Verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I that have no rights to refrain from working for living? Verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And this is what Paul says about his rights. You see, Paul can 
Paul says over and over through his epistles that he, he, he's the chief sinner, but yet in being the chief sinner, he's also the chief apostle. Like, Paul has a stand for his right. Like, if there's anyone in the New Testament outside of Christ, Paul had rights. And yet, this is what he says about his rights. He just said in those first few verses, see, I could make a claim for all of my rights. But this is what he says. Nevertheless, we or I have not made us this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of what? The gospel of Christ. He's saying it's not my right because my right is an obstacle to the gospel. You see, Paul was willing to give up his rights for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to give up our preferences apart from the gospel? Will we lay everything aside because when we don't, we will retaliate to protect our rights? And so here we are. For us this morning, as we come into this passage, What will we do and what will we say and how will we live? Will we begin to protect our rights or will we begin to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we going to protect our rights and in protecting our rights not give the opportunity for every man, every woman, and every child to what? To what Jesus said, to hear, to see, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's when I fight for my rights, I no longer look outside of myself to those who are lost without a shepherd. And so this morning, we'll look at this passage about our rights. Our rights. And we'll look at what the law taught, what the Pharisees were teaching, and what Jesus taught. Here's what John Stott, amazing theologian, said about this passage of Scripture. Because I believe this passage of Scripture, and what we'll look at next week, is about this idea of love. Because the crux of all the Sermon on the Mount is about our love. Do we really love people more than we love ourselves? Because if we love people more than we love ourselves, we will be willing to sacrifice self for the others so that they'll have a chance to do what we have done, to hear, to see, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Allow our rights never be a hindrance to others seeing and hearing and responding to the freedom that Christ offers them. But it starts with us. It starts with will we lay our rights to the side. This is what John Stott says about this. He says, the final two antithesis bring us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the climax, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount. Fortune is both admired and most resented. How come? Because we'll have to lay down self. Mainly the attitude towards love which Christ calls us as believers to show towards one who is evil and our enemies. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinction of the Christian countercultural more obvious. Nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. You see, we will only be able to do these next few sections of this passage of Scripture through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The only way that we'll have empowerment of the Holy Spirit is to surrender ourselves and to surrender our rights over to the, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so what did the law teach? The law comes from Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It's this idea of lex talionis is what this is called. This is called the law of retaliation. The, The idea of the law of retaliation is simply this, throughout the Old Testament, 
Does the punishment fit the crime? Does what, what the person did fit the, the crime, fit the punishment? So the law was given to the people of God for two purposes. It had two effects. First, it was to define what was fair and just. Because what was happening back then in the Old Testament was that the punishment was no longer fitting a crime. They were trying to outdo the punishment to prove a point. The second thing is that what this law of retaliation was given to us was that it would protect against retaliation. Here's the two, the three passages. And it was only to be done by the judges. That God had placed judges over his people to judge the people, to give the people the law, and they were the ones to uphold the law, no one else. That's very important because we're getting to what the Pharisees taught. So it was given by God to the judges to judge the people of God, and God's law was to reign over the people of God to do two things. To, to allow the punishment to fit the crime and to uh, protect them from retaliating against one another. It comes out of Exodus chapter 21, uh, 22 through 25. This happens, uh, this law, the law of uh, tooth for a tooth and eye for an eye, comes out of in Exodus about what happens to a pregnant woman when she's hit. So have that in mind. A lot of times we just take the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, and we don't give it to the context. So the context here was to protect against the pregnant woman who was being abused. It says, a man strives together and hits a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall surely impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is no harm, then he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so you see that the law was given to God's people to say to them, hey, if this happens to you, this is the just and fair judgment that can happen to you. Now, that does not simply mean that that has to happen to you. That's the boundaries of the parameters which God's law permits to happen to another person. Leviticus 24, 17 through 23 says this, Whoever takes a man's life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall surely make it good for life for life. Meaning if you take someone's animal, you now deserve to have one of your animals given to them. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him also. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make, good, make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the, the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out to, of the camp the one who had crushed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Deuteronomy 19.21 Your eye shall not, not pity. You shall have life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand. So it was this idea that God had given this rule to God's people to govern God's people against retaliation. Not even to make it even and right. How do I know this? Because God knows our hearts. God knows in our hearts our tendency is for retaliation. It's always the one up someone. I have many stories about this. I'll tell one story. Please don't laugh and make fun of me. It happened when I was in elementary school. I'll remember it like it was yesterday. Well, parts of it. You'll get to the reason I only remember parts of it. I was in second, first or second grade. I was at the end of the cul-de-sac. It was 
when these new homes were going into the end of the cul-de-sac and there's this, this thing of woods and, and uh, that we would make forts and play uh, cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers. And yet there was always this one girl. Um, she, she got in the way a little bit. She was way bigger than I was. I was a skinny little, little kid in the first and second grade. She felt like she must have been in 10th grade. I think she was only in fourth grade, but she towered over me. I mean, she was a, a big girl. Uh, I don't mean, I just mean big, all around big. Like, she walked it, thundered it. I mean, she was big mama. And, and I don't remember what we called her. I think we did call her big mama. That didn't go over too well with her. Well, one day, big mama and I and my friends, we were all playing, and I cannot remember for the life of me. I know I started it. I do say that, so I'm not in the wrong. I don't remember if I picked up a rock and hit her. I don't remember if I picked up a stick and hit her. I don't remember if I picked up a baseball and hit her. I don't remember what I hit her with. I remember kind of what she hit me with. I remember it like it was yesterday. So I hit her with something, and Big Mama turned around. And she had that Big Mama look in her eye that I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm dead. (laughs) You know that look. Like, she just gave me that look, and I was like, oh, no. And I knew I couldn't outrun Big Mama, and my friends were going to outrun Big Mama, but I knew she was coming for me. Well, all that I remember is Big Mama turning around, and she had that lost look in her eye. I was like, oh, no. She was no longer looking at me. She was looking through me. You ever gotten that look from somebody? And it was like, oh, no. Big Mama's going to kill me. I'm a first grader. I'm done. The last thing I remember is laying on the ground and bleeding out the top of my head and Big Mama looking over top of me. And Big Mama had this big old log. It wasn't a stick. It was like a two-handed barrel. She had taken that log and cracked me upside the head. I'd never mess with Big Mama again. I remember wandering back to my babysitter's house, bleeding out the top of my head. But when I was studying this passage, it came back to me. Because I remember thinking, all that girl wanted to do was retaliate. Her rights had been violated, and she was going to one-up me. And she one-up me. I mean, she knocked me clear out. But God knows our hearts. I say all that story because God knows our heart. God knows our heart is always to retaliate. When our rights have been violated, our rights are more important than anything else. And we'll do whatever we can to protect our rights. And we'll always go to the extreme to protect our rights. And so God had given us the law to protect against retaliation. And so what had happened was, the Pharisees were beginning to teach this. That it wasn't about what Romans chapter 12 says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think we forget that verse. I think we forget that God is more concerned about us than we're concerned about us. That God loves us and cares us more than we love and care about ourselves. And yet so often when our rights are violated, we want to take the law in our own hands. And we t- once we do that, we come out of our submission to God and say, God, you're not enough for me. You won't protect me. And we become our own gods and we become our own protector. And what God is saying, no, I am your ultimate protector. And yet when we go to revenge ourselves or have retaliation against ourselves, we're making ourselves God. And so God knew that was our heart from the very beginning. How? It's what we looked at last week. From the very beginning, when we are at the fall, our hearts were changed, and it was no longer about God, but it was about self. And yet God says, it's vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Do we believe that this morning? 
Do we really believe that God cares and loves for us enough to watch over us and we no longer have to defend ourselves? This is what the Pharisees were teaching. The Pharisees were teaching, hey, let's just take the law in your own hands. Just just go ahead. Don't trust God. Take the law in your own hands and you decide what's best. You decide what is the, the most appropriate punishment. And so... They took the law of God and said it's no longer, uh, this, this is no longer the parameters uh, of retaliation, but this is what is mandated of the law. If your hand gets cut off, you must cut the other man's hand off. That's not what the law of God was teaching. The law of God was teaching, hey, this is how you live in relationship with one another. And the Pharisees were taking the law how not to live in relationship with other people. So what does Jesus say about all that? Here's what Michael Eaton has to say. He says, Jesus is dealing with the personal attitude rather than the hard and fast rules. How come? Because Jesus knows the attitude. Jesus knows the heart. And the heart of retaliation is what we have to get to. Because God knows through Jesus that he changes the heart, then our actions were changed. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not about our external. It's about the internal. Because God knows if our internal heart changes, our external behavior will change not the other way around. God isn't concerned about you changing your behavior so your behavior changes your heart. He cares that your heart is changed. Once your heart is changed, your behavior will change. So this is what Jesus teaches us, four things in this passage. I think it comes down to the most basic rights of a human being. And Jesus takes the four most basic rights of a human being and addresses all four of them. The four are this, dignity, security, liberty or freedom, and property. He's going to address those basic rights in us in context of the law of retaliation. So he starts, the most basic of all the basics. What does he say? Let's look. He said, you've heard it said this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, there's that word you four times in this passage of scripture. All the other times up to this point in this Sermon on the Mount, the you was meant for a plural. So when, I, when he would say you, he was addressing everyone. And now he uses this word you in the singular form. You Rob, you Todd, you fill in the blank. Whatever your name is, he's now addressing you personally. It's amazing that in the shift up until this point, he's now been broadcasting to everyone and now he's saying to the singular person. It's no longer a community thing, it's now the singular person. You, me, I must change. Not you, the community must change, but you, the person must change. Four times he uses that word, you, in the singular form. That's important to note here. He says, you, Todd, you have heard it said, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sues you, take your cloak, or your shirt, and let him have your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So the very first thing that we see, Jesus goes after our right of dignity. And this, isn't, this is the idea of respect. And it's the very thing our forefathers founded this country on 
the respect of another human being, that all men are created equal. And so Jesus is going to talk about the respect, that we're all equal. And what does he say in this passage? I love the word picture he says. He says this, if anyone, what, slaps you on the right cheek. Jared, come up here for a second. I, I want to demonstrate with this. I'm not going to slap him, I promise. That's why I picked Jared. Well, here's the word picture. So in that day, most people were right-handed. And so if, he, if I'm right-handed, I'm not going to hit you, I promise. Man, he could take me out anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. If I have my right hand, if we're mostly right-handed men, if I were to take my right hand and raise it and strike him in the face, what cheek would he hit? The left. And so what Jesus was saying here in this passage is this. When you get hit in the right cheek, you see, you can sit down, Jared. When we look at it that way, what's more insulting? A backhanded slap or an open-handed slap to the face? Man, it's way more disrespectful to get backhanded. Why? Because it doesn't really hurt that bad. But man, it, it shows that you devalue someone to the hilt. It, it said in that day that, that the, the slaves would much rather be slapped with a whip than have a backhand to the face. How come? Because they knew a backhand to the face showed no respect at all. Like you think about it, when you backhand something or you just shoo something away, it's like you give it no value. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When you disrespect someone that much, he's saying to us, hey, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. What is he talking about there? What does he mean to turn the other cheek? He, he's saying it this way. He's saying, show the other person what he just talked about in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 5. He says, when you turn the other cheek, you will show the person that has disrespect for you that what? You are gentle in heart. And you are low in spirit. Remember what he says in, in those verses. Flip back over to Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are the, what, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. So when we turn the other cheek, we are showing the other person that we have lived out the beatitude. When we begin to live out the Beatitudes, we show people that we are the salt and light of the world. We will have a change in us, and when we turn the other cheek, it will just have to make the other person ponder and wonder, what's different about this guy? Why? Because our instinct is, man, if someone slaps me across the face, I I'm coming across the table like a spider monkey. I'll rip your face off. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying is, no, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. How do we know this? He, Jesus, was our greatest example of turning the other cheek. Our greatest example. Look at what he says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26 is, is the culmination of Christ's life. It's right before Christ is a, a, about to go to the cross. Christ has been taken from his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's brought before the high priest. And it says this in verses 60, uh, 67 and 68. And then they... The people that had came and grabbed Christ, they, what, they hit him in this, they spit him in the face, and they struck him. And someone slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that strikes you? And Jesus sat there and said, nothing. He turned the other cheek. And he, he continued the whole time to turn the other cheek. It says this in Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6. This is what Christ himself says through Isaiah. 
I gave my back to those who would strike me. I gave my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. You see, Christ's dignity was on the line that night. If there was anyone on the planet, anybody that had the dignity and the right to say, no, stop, Christ didn't do it. Because he had something further in mind in that moment than getting whipped and beaten and spit upon and his beard ripped out. He had something greater in mind. This is what Peter says. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Get those words. Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in His mouth. Let me read that one more time. Verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. For this you have been called if you're a believer, you've been called this morning to something greater than yourself. That God and His sovereignty and His will saw you at the beginning of time and, and called you out from death to life to follow Him in everything. And part of following Him is to follow in His suffering. Let me say that one more time. God knew when He called you, you did not call yourself. God called you, God chose you out of the pit of hell, chose you for himself, and called you to follow Christ. Christ and God knew that you would suffer for that. And Christ became the example for us what it would look like in our suffering. He says this, you have been called because Christ suffered for you. The only reason you're called is because of Christ's suffering on the cross. You would not be called if there was no suffering of Christ. You would not be chosen to be a son or a daughter of God without the suffering of Christ. That's what marks us different than every other religion is the death and the life and the resurrection of Christ Jesus and He's called you into that life. And so that's a life of suffering. Let me say that one more time. This is not going to make me, uh, this is not kudo points. When you come to Christ, you will suffer for Him. How come? Because He suffered for you. Leaving you an example. He is the example. So that you might follow in what his footsteps. What were his footsteps? To get spat upon. To get beaten. To get his beard ripped out. To get made fun of. To hang on a cross. To get a spear in his side. To be ripped off the cross. To be laid in the tomb. That will happen for you and for me if we follow Christ. If we're in his footsteps, that's where he went. Therefore, I must go. But when our rights gets in the way, we want to get out of following his footsteps. Oh God, not me. Oh no. No, my rights are more important than that. Oh, my rights. I don't deserve that. Oh, I got to fight for that because no one else is going to fight for me for that. And God, through Peter, just said, no, you will follow in his footsteps. If you are following Christ this morning... You will suffer for him and you will lose your dignity because Christ lost his dignity. Do we believe that this morning? And yet, 
when he lost his dignity, he committed no sin, and deceit was not found in his mouth. He turned the other cheek. He turned the other cheek. The next thing that we see is in verse 40. When we surrender our will and we surrender our life in Christ, we will lose our dignity and we will lose our security. He says this in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic or your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. What that means is your your tunic was simply this, your outer garment, your undergarment, your shirt. Your cloak was your coat. You see, those are two important things. For us, we have a lot of coats and we have a lot of shirts. And so it's like, yeah, go ahead, take my shirt. I got another one. I'll take my jacket. I got 20 more in my closet. I just have 20 because the the 10 I don't really like. They're no longer fashionable. That, That was not the case in the time of Jesus. They had one coat and maybe two shirts. And so for them to get sued for a shirt was a big deal. And what Jesus is saying here, hey, when you get sued for your shirt, give up your coat as well. That would sound crazy to them. How come? Because that would be them. Hey, I'm giving up my security. Because their coat to them was their everything. Their coat was the thing they would lay on the ground to protect themselves from the elements of the ground. So their coat wasn't just their coat. It was their everything. It was the way that they had security. It was the way that they had comfort. And yet, Jesus says to us, lose your security. Lose your security. Will we lose our security to follow Christ? The next thing that we see is our liberty or our freedom. Verse 41. If anyone forces you, underline the word forces, to go one mile, go with him two miles. What was happening in the day, there was a law back in the day when the Romans came and began to rule over the Israelites. The the law was that if a Roman soldier came to a citizen and said to the citizen, hey, I want you to carry my backpack, they had to, without discussion, carry it for a mile. And those were some heavy backpacks. And what the Roman soldiers were doing were two things. It was to prove their power over people and and their laziness. It was to show the people, you really don't have the freedom you think you have. Because I, as a Roman soldier, can make you do whatever I want you to do. And what would happen was the Roman soldier would go from one mile to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And they would walk their whole journey without carrying anything but themselves. And they put oppression on the people of God. And yet Christ says in this passage to us and to them that day, take the oppression. Will we lose our freedom for Christ? Christ says, give up your freedom for me. And so for us this morning, will we lose our freedom? It's the idea, it's what happened in Matthew chapter 27. This is many scholars believe this is the reason that in verse 32, as they went, they remember Jesus had been beaten. Jesus was carrying his cross. He could no longer carry his cross because of his body. His, he was in fatigue. He was dying before he even died. So he couldn't carry his cross. And so they were carrying the cross. And the Roman soldiers did not want to carry the cross. And so they called, who they call? Remember, they, they called Simon by name and said to him, you carry his cross. So even that passage of Scripture shows us 
that it was still happening in the day of Christ. That Christ was here to give up his freedom and cause us to give up our freedom. The last thing that he says is this in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What Jesus is not talking about, let, let me say this loud and clear. I ride in the Nashville every day. There are more homeless and beggars in Nashville than I've ever seen in my entire life. And what, what Jesus is saying is that we don't go out of our way to give to the homeless man who's only going to use it for drugs and alcohol because us giving to him is really only harming him. What Jesus is saying is when we give and we're compelled to give, we give to the person that it's not going to harm, but it's going to help. And you and I all know those people that are in real need. There are such things as professional beggars. They make more money than you and I combined. It's crazy. They don't look like it because they're, they're swindlers. And Jesus is not talking about those people. Jesus is talking here about the man who really is in need. We know people like that. There's people in our own community that are in true need. And there's so often, I'll just be honest, in my own life, where I know and see a need and I say, but it's mine, God. I worked for it hard. Let them go get a job. And what Jesus is saying to us, he's saying to me is this, am I willing to let go of what doesn't even belong to me to begin with? My money is not my money. My car is not my money. Well, the house isn't my house. It's y'all's house. But y'all can take it from me anytime. I do own a house in Florida, but that's not really even my house. All that I have is a blessing from the Lord. I'm just called to be a steward of what God has given to me. And God is saying to me and to us as a church is, are we going to be good stewards with what God has given to us? Will we let our property go to further the kingdom of God? Are we be so fearful to hold on to what he has given us to think we need the security of our property because no one else will take care of us it goes back to reveals what our heart is towards god is god who god says he is will god take care of us will god provide for us or will we live in a posture that says nope i gotta get mines and keeps mines that's what god is talking about and so here jesus is talking to us about these three things when it comes to this idea of retaliation Will we continue to be selfish? Will we continue to protect our dignity? Will we begin, continue to cont- protect our security? Will we continue to protect our freedoms and our property? Four things as we close this morning. We'll be observing communion this morning. And as we observe communion this morning, we will talk and I want us to reflect on these four things. Because when we observe communion this morning, it's a reminder that God gave up His dignity. That God gave up His dignity through Christ. He lost it all to rescue us so that we'd have a new identity. You see, this morning, this communion reminds us that our dignity we lay aside so we take up our new identity as Christ's children. Have we laid our dignity aside because Christ Jesus himself did Christ Jesus himself lost his security by stepping out of heaven and taking the form of a man let's remember that that Christ was in heaven and had all things under his disposal and yet Christ said I it's not about my security it's about my obedience to you father and I'll give all this up 
all this security up for you. Why? Because God's purpose was to redeem you and to redeem me. So Jesus knew he had to give up his security. Why? So that we would have what we call eternal security. Let me say that again. Christ gave up his security for your eternal security. No one can rob you of that eternal security. No one. The second thing is Christ sacrificed his liberty, his freedom, so that you could live free forever. Say that one more time. Christ, and that's what we're going to remember, Christ gave up his freedom and hung on a cross where he could have called angel upon angel upon angel upon angel to free him from the cross, and yet Christ sacrificed his freedom for your and mine ultimate freedom. That's why we're here this morning. The last thing he gave up was his property. What property am I talking about? The greatest property he could have given up, his very life. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord this morning, it's because he gave up his very life for you. He gave up his dignity for you. He gave up his security for you. He gave up his freedom for you so that you would have dignity. You would have security. You would have liberty. And that your property would be forever and ever in the kingdom of God. Do we believe that this morning? If you are lost this morning, you do not know Jesus this morning, you will always protect your dignity. You will always protect your security. You will always protect your freedom. You will always protect your property. Because it's what's in you. It's your heart. Your heart must change. The only way to have a change of heart is for you and to me to surrender to the Lord and Savior of our life, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, everything changes for you. Eternally. But in the moment that everything changes for you, you will suffer. You will suffer. Now, I'm sure people aren't going to rush the stage this morning to sign me up for that. But when you come to know Christ this morning, hear me loud and clear. Your life will be so marked through suffering. How do we know that? Christ himself suffered and died for you and for me. And he's calling us to do the same. Because God knows when we put our agenda aside, our rights aside, that we'll live in a, such a way that this lost world will say, what is different about them? You see, when I turn the other cheek, people are going to begin to wonder. When I give more than what I'm supposed to give, people are going to wonder. When when I give away what I have, people are going to begin to wonder what's different, what's marked different about him because he lives differently than the world. And then I had the opportunity to share, oh, it's not because of me. It's because of my Savior who hung across for me and gave it all up for me. You see, then I get the opportunity to share the gospel with every man and every woman and every child. And I give them the opportunity to what? To hear, to see, and what? To respond to what Christ has done for me. That's the gospel. That's the greatest news that can ever be given. And so for us, the heart of retaliation goes back to, has your heart changed? If your heart has changed, you'll do what Paul says in Romans. Live peacefully with every man. Because when we live peacefully with every man, we give them opportunity to hear, see, and respond to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we go into communion, my prayer is that we're going to leave those four words on on, on the screen this morning. And as we go and we distribute the the food, the, the bread, 
and the wine, the, the juice, that you will remember that God gave up his dignity, his security, his liberty, and his property for you. My prayer is that you'll pray over those four things. You'll pray to the holy God of the universe. The Holy Spirit will convict you. Is there any place that you hold tight in your hand? Because it's only out of a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for what you said through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. I gave my back to those who would strike me. I gave my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. And I did not hide my face from disgrace and from spitting. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you did those things for me. That you did, Jesus. You lost your dignity. You lost your security. You lost your liberty. You gave up your property for me. A sinner lost without a shepherd. God, you did that for so many in this room. You did that for all of us in the room. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that does not know that and does not hold on to that this morning, that to this morning, God, your Holy Spirit would stir their hearts and say, that is not you. And yet the gift is freely given to them this morning. God, I pray that they receive that gift. I pray for us as we come to, to your supper, the Lord's Supper. You remind us, God, of all that you've done for us. And in reminding of all you've done for us, God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us of the things that we continue to hold on to and fight for. Continue to lead us, I pray in Christ's name.